welcome to the Urology COVID Lecture Series Podcast, brought to you by the UCSF Department of Urology. In today's episode, we have Dr. Jim Hu from Whale Cornell Medicine talking about anatomic and technical considerations for kidney and prostate surgery. Hi there, this is Jim Hugh from Wild Cornell Medicine. I'm delighted to speak today as part of the UCSF COVID lecture series and Rand uh, Vandenberg is on today, our fourth year resident, who's actually gonna be a fifth year resident soon as the moderator. So, uh, so Rand will be sorting through the questions that pop up and we'll have a little bit of time at the end to go through that. So, so today's talk is gonna focus largely on um, you know, things that, that, that I think are helpful as I think of kidney surgeries, which we'll start with in terms of a laparoscopic nephrectomy, uh, partial nephrectomy robotically, and then we'll move to, to prostate. This is, uh, I, I'm told, recorded so that one can go back and, and um, see, the, um, see the, 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 go back and look at these references. And so, so these are just the, the papers that we'll be touching upon and for more detail, you're welcome to, to look these up and get the PDFs. Um, so I'm going to start by looking at just uh, laparoscopic donor nephrectomies because I think that's a, a, good, um, a good foundation of what to, to think about in terms of kidney surgeries. Uh, fortunately at UCLA, the, the urology service does all of the donor nephrectomies and this was a good base to build on in terms of experience as a resident. And then uh, when I went back there as staff, we, we looked at some of the evolution and technique that Dr. Peter Shulam had really largely done and uh, some of the outcomes associated with that. And so this then just outlines some of the evolution of the technical modifications that were made uh, during this period of time. And I'll just point out some of the, the critical things to think about during a laparoscopic nephrectomy, and this may apply to a robotic assisted as well, is that with the advent of the HD camera, that allowed us then to go down to a smaller trocar size to five millimeter trocar size. There's also uh, a switch to cold scissor incision. I think we started out using the harmonic scalpel. And um, I'll talk a little bit about a fascial band leaving that before you extract the specimen. It just prevents the tearing of the fascia that may occur from the port manipulation and therefore loss of pneumoperitoneum. Uh, in terms of important steps, for any nephrectomy is that if you're planning to use the, the laparoscopic endovascular stapler, then to try to achieve hemostasis around the hilum with the vessel sealer rather than the harmonic scalpel. So, so in all of my laparoscopic nephrectomies, I use the, the vessel sealer uh, or the, uh, uh, rather than the, 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 the harmonic scalpel. And, um, and I th again, I think that's a, a big thing that I'm a proponent of. I mentioned earlier, some of the issues with the, the fascial incision. Again, this probably applies more to lap donor nephrectomy where you're trying to get the specimen out quickly without too much warm ischemia time. But some of the lessons learned as well, I think apply to positioning here. Uh, so over time, we actually took out the flex in the bed. There is no kidney rest. And um, placing the arm, if, the ipsilateral arm on the side rather than kind of laying it across between pillows or on, on, a, on an airplane, is helpful just because as you're chasing the ureter down into the pelvis, then there's the, the, the camera, uh, as the, the scope is being manipulated, it's not gonna hit the arm uh, out here. And the other kind of key things to note that I'll point out a little later as well is 
when you're in the decubitus position, true midline, that is, if you're going to split the rectus muscle, it's actually going to be, you have to think about the panis falling down so that the true midline, if you're using surface anatomy, is going to be a little higher than where the umbilicus appears, again, as the, as the uh, panis shifts down. And this just shows you our kind of somewhat linear port configurations to do the procedure, and this applies to the radical nephrectomy as well. Um, the donor nephrectomies are largely left-sided just because of the preference of the recipient surgeon with the longer vein that the left kidney affords. But one of the critical steps for any kidney surgery is to uh, incise the peritoneum really, really high. And, uh, you know, we always put a, uh, a oral gastric tube because as you're doing this, oftentimes you'll encounter the stomach and you don't want to uh, accidentally enter the stomach, of course. So oral gastric tube is, is good for decompression. Uh, sometimes you'll find a vein that you can see uh, in the, uh, the muscular diaphragmatic um, uh, aspect that, that can serve as a landmark for where you should stop this incision. But in general, you want to reflect that lateral attachment of the spleen as, as far as possible because that's just going to flip it out of the way for upper pole exposure. One of the other key concepts that, that I think may not be as well known either is, is particularly when you're trying to find the ureter early on, uh, a useful landmark to find that is the lower pole of the kidney. In fact, you know, we're all familiar with the, the saying water under the bridge, meaning that the ureter travels underneath the gonadal vein. But that point at which it crosses under, and if you're trying to find the ureter, uh, is, is usually right at the lower pole of the kidney. So, so if you identify the gonadal vein, which you often do as you're reflecting the, the descending colon, uh, you, you can see the, the outline of that dark bluish area, then you'll be able to find the ureter right behind that. Um, in terms of some of the other uh, things to keep in mind, again, many of you who've done laparoscopic nephrectomies, you, you know that you'll be able to see that yellowish characteristic color of the adrenal gland. One of the key things during a lap donor, and if you're doing an adrenal sparing nephrectomy, is to use counter-traction uh, to lift up the adrenal using a, a, vas uh, a uh, atraumatic grasper and just lifting it up and reflecting it medial and anteriorly. That allows you to uh, get good exposure uh, and, and really divide the plane between the adrenal and the upper medial pole down to the body wall. Uh, also, to help find the midline, particularly for extraction, uh, this is just a camera view where the camera under the sub subcostal edge is looking into the pelvis. And here's the medial umbilical ligaments coming together to form a triangle. So again, that can help one find midline uh, to, to, so that one could do the extraction less dramatically. With the donor nephrectomy, of course, with an emphasis on cosmesis, we're using a fanon and still incision, but we're really undermining the upper aspect of this incision so that we can make a midline incision in the fascia. And I spoke earlier about a fascial bridge. The, the trocar is inserted here. We're taking the fascia, again, to decrease warm ischemic time later down to the, uh, the, the, the preperitoneal fat, the peritoneum, and then we leave a bridge between the the 15 millimeter trocar so that manipulation of that port doesn't tear and leak, cause leakage of insufflation. This is just again the, the what I mentioned earlier the importance of uh, using that atraumatic grasper on the adrenal gland to provide exposure for the medial upper pole. Um, one of the other things that people commonly do that I see is that uh, again with adrenal sparing you may find that some people will reflect the the pancreas out of the way and then they'll do this step as well. Well it's somewhat redundant to reflect the pancreas all the way down 
and then do this again. So once you get the pancreas out of the way a little bit to see the adrenal gland, just do this and that just, uh, that's just for economy of motion and efficiency. Uh, in terms of a lap donor nephrectomy, of course, uh, pretty much we free everything, uh, including lateral attachment of the kidney. So that's a little different with a radical nephrectomy. You would typically leave that. Uh, but uh, uh, for a donor nephrectomy, the last step is going to be to divide the artery followed by the vein with endovascular stapler and then to divide the ureter. And so kind of keeping that tension uh, with your instruments to make the hilum, uh, put hilum on stretch so that you can get as much uh, length on the vessels as critical. So just, um, I'm gonna skip around here on this video in the interest of time. Um, but, uh, but again, just illustrating some of the figures and steps that we described, this just shows the importance of reflecting the peritoneum really up high. As I see little vessels come through here, I will use the, the vessel sealer or ligature in order to do this. And, and again, I, you can be as aggressive as you want up here, minimize the likelihood that you'll poke, poke, poke a little hole into the uh, diaphragm and end up with a, uh, pneumothorax um, and be cognizant right in that corner of the, the stomach that'll come in view. So then this is just really dividing the white line at halt. Again, I, I prefer to do this with scissors. I think it's a good um, uh, exercise to train your eyes in terms of sharp dissection. Obviously, you see that little vessel here. If I cut that, that would ooze and it would you know cause unpleasant uh, darkness to my field. So I kind of do as much as I can incising the avascular portion of the the peritoneum and I'll leave the, the, the more prominent vessels uh, for the vessel sealer. And again, for a donor nephrectomy, you're gonna do this aggressively in the caudad directions because you need to find the, the ureter as it crosses over the common iliac artery. Here, we're, we're starting to, uh, uh, again, reflect the descending colon as it travels over the mid and upper portion of the, the uh, kidney. Um, and so, uh, again, critical to do this down to Dorota's fascia. You want to try to preserve Dorota's and not get into it because it just helps delineate that, that anatomic plane. Um, here I'm, I'm, I'm starting to work up towards the upper pole. So now, I mentioned earlier, you can see as you're reflecting the colon, the, uh, the gonadal vein, you can actually see ureter here. But it just differentiates two techniques. That is one, sharp dissection to reflect the colon. The other is you can use a kidner and use kind of this uh, top spin, if you will, to, uh, to separate things more bluntly. Here I'm using sharp dissection. You can see there's the, the uh, renal vein. Um, and again, that, that, that traction, counter-traction is always very important. Um, let me just let it run a little longer and we'll find the portion where we're gonna, again, I, I, I mentioned earlier, just looking at the ureter, there it is underneath the the uh, canal vein, and, and roughly you can see the outline of the lower pole of the kidney here. The nice thing about the vessel sealer, it seals vessels up to seven millimeters. I still, I, I will still activate it above and below where I will ultimately divide. Uh, and so, so again, just ligating and dividing without any clips is my preference. And you saw a nice little peristalsis. Now the critical thing, and you can do this for a, uh, a radical nephrectomy as well, is to dissect the, the kidney off of the the fascia uh, and the, the posterior body wall posteriorly. I will try not to enter this fascia. One of the common things that you'll notice with any retroperitoneal kidney case is that if you, uh, if you violate the fascia, you tend to get some of the sensory nerves and patients will complain about numbness over the anterior thigh. So leaving the fascia on the psoas, the quadratus is, is uh, I think a good thing. Here we're just chasing it, the ureter towards the common iliac artery. I'm gonna now, I mentioned earlier the, the there's the adrenal gland. I mentioned getting the adrenal off, so I'm establishing that 
lateral edge of the adrenal now against the, the uh, upper pole of the kidney. Notice I didn't over dissect the pancreas down and then come back and do this uh, because again, that's redundant. And that, that medial uh, anterior tension is critical and I'm hugging that adrenal gland as much as possible because if there were a renal artery branch, uh, you don't want it. You don't want to be more close to the kidney, and then uh, you, you might get into arterial bleeding, which of course would be bad for a donor nephrectomy for graft function. So here we're we're almost through with the upper medial pole dissection. One of the landmarks is to get down to the the posterior body wall, the psoas in this case, and you see that right there. One of the common pitfalls that I see people doing when they do a left donor nephrectomy is they don't do this upper pole dissection at all, even with a radical nephrectomy. And oftentimes when you're firing the stapler, you're not seeing the tip of the stapler uh, above the hilum. And so that's why getting this upper pole medial dissection is, is I think very important so that you, you can see clearly what you're firing at. And um, now just demonstrating taking the adrenal vein with the ligature device. Again, if I were to put clips on here, I'm, I'm, I'm I'm forced then, in a way, not to fire the stapler where those clips are. Uh, and again, I think this is just a safer way to do it. So posterior dissection, this is also critical for anyone doing a lap radical nephrectomy. A lot of this can be done bluntly. But by getting a, as high as I can with some of those posterior attachments, that causes more freedom to lift up on the kidney and stretch the hilum for better exposure. So you're going to see me do some of this bluntly. I'm, I'm just going to, this is the 15 millimeter port coming in for the stapler, again, using the landmark of the junction of the medial umbilical ligaments coming together from the midline. Um, let's see if I've, I'm, I'm just taking some of this lateral attachments. Uh, again, for a donor nephrectomy, you want this completely freed up to decrease form ischemia. I'm gonna jump ahead to the part where we're bringing in the, the, the stapler now. So this is the kidney elevation. And um, one of the other, I, I think, tendencies that some people may have is you don't need to dissect out the renal artery. Once you create a space between the renal vein and artery, and, and as, as long as you thin things out posteriorly so that this isn't going to misfire, um, this is just going to save some time and likely decrease the likelihood of lymphocytes by not over dissecting there the, uh, the, the renal artery. And so we know that we got it here. I'm kind of pushing the adrenal gland out of the way so that and then getting the, uh, the renal vein at, at where I'm crossing over the aorta so that we get as, as much of a length on the renal vein as possible. Clipping the ureter, then we're gonna take this out. And one of the critical things that I do now, again, for, for um, radical nephrectomies as well, is we extract it. Um, here, I'm just gonna stop. So we've extracted the specimen, we've closed the fascia, and then I re-insufflate and I look in there. And the reason we do that is that, you know, this period of time between extraction and closure if there's significant bleeding, you're going to see pooling of blood in the retroperitoneum between the time I re-insufflate after closure of the fascia. So I think it's critical to go back in and look at this um, after some time has elapsed. And by doing this, you know, uh, knock on wood, I haven't had to take anyone back for any bleeding. Uh, so, so briefly, just to go over some of the outcomes, again, these, this was largely left-sided, as you can see, 98.6% left-sided. In, in most cases, almost three-quarters of them were single arteries. Uh, but certainly there were some that more complicated hilar anatomy. And then when you look at the complications, again, with uh, donor nephrectomies, uh, the, the saying we used to always uh, verse with residents is the best you can do is tie, meaning you're starting out with a perfectly healthy patient. This isn't for cancer indication, and uh, you want them to be healthy afterwards. Uh, so uh, you can see that you know the, the complications from a clavian standpoint weren't terribly excessive. There was a 
misfire and varus injury to uh, the uh, uh, artery. So um, I wanted to start out with the donor nephrectomy because with those fundamentals, it really prepared me to do, this is the first um, robotic partial nephrectomy I did back in 2008 when I was still in Boston. At that time, you can see we dissected out the renal artery, the renal vein, multiple arteries and veins here, and we were, I was concerned at that time about losing bulldogs. This was a posterior renal mass, so the kidney is being flipped entirely. Um, just showing you, you know, the technique there, the gush was from entry of the collecting system, and so just taking this mass out entirely and then uh, doing the renorophy. Early on, again, I would roll up a cell as a bolster, which I no longer do, and we'll talk a little bit more about that. In contrast, currently, with uh, posterior renal masses, now we do a retroperitoneal approach, just faster, don't have to flip the kidney. Uh, the setup, of course, with the SI robot was that the robot would have to come over the head of the patient. Now with the XIs, of course, that rotate, one no longer has to do that, but the assistant stands ventrally uh, on, the, on, the, on the patient's si uh, side, and there's just a variation in terms of port placement. This was a multi-center study where uh, Jim Porter and I had similar port placement, and uh, Alone Weiser from the University of Michigan preferred uh, his, his camera port off the tip of the 12th rib, whereas we, we would put it in the mid-axillary line just above the iliac crest. Um, you know, for those who are unfamiliar with retroperitoneal surgery, your first view is that of the psoas muscle after you've created the space, then uh, you're gonna open up Gerota's fascia and then you're gonna be right on the renal artery. So the time to the hilum is very quick. Um, we're also gonna, you know, some people, I'll talk a little bit more about that during the video. Uh, then, then one has to orient yourself, of course, to the cross-sectional imaging. That is, you know, use the artery as a landmark to determine if you're gonna go cephalad for a upper pole tumor versus cotad for a lower pole tumor. DFAT, you know, retroperitoneal surgery, personal nephrectomy is oftentimes about fat, manage, fat management. So these are just some of the outcomes compared to uh, the published series, but in our multi-surgeon, multi-institutional series, the uh, operative time uh, averaged a little over uh, two and a half hours uh, and uh, warm ischemia time was uh, relatively short for the partial nephrectomies. Length to stay, usually I, I discharge the partial nephrectomies the next day with keeping them on Keterlac. In terms of um, uh, uh, case analysis or case demonstration, this is a patient, 65-year-old guy who uh, previously uh, had a left uh, renal mass, uh, now presenting with right renal mass on surveillance imaging. That left renal mass originally was treated with a partial nephrectomy. There was a recurrence requiring a completion left nephrectomy uh, and uh, baseline creatinine 1.7. Um, and uh, uh, image-guided biopsy was performed that showed a papillary type one uh, papillary renal cell carcinoma. Because of that prior uh, open nephrectomy, there was SBO, was transperitoneal, and, uh, and, and hence uh, another reason to do an extraperitoneal approach is just to avoid all those adhesions, and the patient actually had a lysis adhesion small bowel resection. So looking at the solitary kidney on the right, as well as the cross-sectional imaging, um, you can appreciate the artery and there's a branching of the renal artery there. Um, when I present this, it always lags here, uh, PowerPoint. So uh, let's give it a little time to catch up. Good, and so there's the renal mass there with the characteristic radiology green target. Uh, so you can see it's completely endophytic, really um, central renal mass. And then on the uh, coronals, uh, there's the mass again. So, so solitary, uh, solitary kidney, and um, I'm going I'm to start off just by demonstrating my technique of getting down to create the space. So this is a visiport. I'll make that uh, 
mid-axillary incision just above the iliac crest. And then instead of using my finger, I like to use the visiport because the finger inevitably is going to create a larger hole. You're going to sit there. You got to use some Vaseline gauze and put sutures in to prevent leakage. Whereas if I just use the visiport, 12 millimeter visiport, then replace that with my laparoscopic hernia balloon, I don't, it's much faster. I don't need to uh, play around with uh, having to put sutures using gauze to prevent leakage. Here we're blowing up that hernia balloon. Some of your landmarks already, you can see the, the uh, posterior body wall, there's the ureter, there's the gonadal vein. Uh, and you know, how, how, how many, how do, you, how do you know when to stop in, inflating the balloon? Well, the seams in the balloon come out. Uh, so usually I'll have, I'll, you know, we'll do it to 40 and then just watch the seams come out. People are afraid they'll blow it up and blow up the balloon, but just do it, do it under visualization. So now nicely you can see that that space has been created and uh, you can appreciate the, the uh, probably the cava there on the right back here, as well as the gonadal vein. Um, so I'm gonna go back now to, let's see here, the next slide. So in this particular case, that was just a demonstration. I'm gonna skip the, the placement of the ports and oftentimes you can reflect the peritoneum a little bit more if you wanted to get more medial on your uh, ventral port placement. This is just the 12 millimeter assistant port. This is going back to our patient with a solitary kidney. So here we found the, uh, the, the renal artery um, and um, we are gonna chase it down to its secondary and tertiary branch, branch points. Again, I mentioned earlier, fat management is important. Um, you're gonna appreciate the, the, there's the renal artery dissected out. There's the renal pelvis. Actually, you'll see a main calyx here. So we're really getting deep within the hilum. And um, there's that calyx, as I mentioned earlier. And then ultras ultrasound to help identify that, that renal mass. In this case, it was um, hypoechoic. And uh, then I used the cautery to outline the border of the resection. Here, we're just using selective artery uh, ligation just because um, this seemed to be the artery that was feeding into that particular mass. Um, now I'm just using cold scissor incision to get to that solitary renal mass. And uh, you're gonna see the, the yellow characteristic color of RCC, which we'll see a little later in another case. And then I'm, I'm trying to avoid getting into the collecting system, uh, not really enucleating, but, but doing a little bit of blunt dissection. And um, you, know, you can tell on the upper part of that mass, we're not as close to it. And there's the mass completely resected. So after a camera wipe, oh, we're gonna do our first layer. So usually what I'll do is I'll close the first layer, uh, trying to identify where the, trying to remember in my mind and look for where the sinuses are as well as where the, the renal artery bleeding is. Uh, so I'll do a first layer and then I'll, I'll typically I'll do early release um, and then close the second layer because that early release then allows you to see if there's any other large uh, arterioles that you may have missed uh, and I think that's a little better way of decreasing your likelihood of a pseudoaneurysm formation. So again, it's going to be a two-layer closure, a little peristalsis there. We finish that first layer. And then, um, then the second layer here, I'll, I'll anchor the stitches first, and then I'll, then I'll take that bulldog off. In the interest of time, I'm just going to skip forward. Um, you know, this is just to kind of describe the early unclamping and uh, just shows a running uh, sliding wet clip technique for the second layer. In this particular patient, very little blood loss. The creatinine, fortunately, didn't change noticeably, and the, the final pathology was just consistent with the biopsy findings. So I was fortunate to be part of a multi-center uh, cable thrombectomy series. This is where we pulled 
our patients, there were 19 total, and uh, mean tumor size was about 10 centimeters. You can see these were relatively long cases, length of stay 3.4 days, although uh, patients ambulated early. So I'm gonna give a case demonstration of an 80-year-old. This is when I was at UCLA, who actually traveled down from Santa Barbara, had presented with lower extremity edema bilaterally, grossing materia, had imaging that showed a cable two thrombus, and that's what the final pathology turned out to be, so pretty nasty capillary type two. Um, and uh, in terms of setting this up, so this is, again is a right renal mass. You can see a pretty uh, engorged uh, gonadal vein there that we're gonna clip. And then because of the, this, this uh, cava and wanting to get good control on this, I actually went inner aortal cable, which we'll see next, to staple the renal artery and, and as well do a, a lymph node dissection. So um, again, this is just the, the canal, so I'm gonna skip ahead. So here we're dissecting medial to the, the cava now, um, and we're gonna find the, the origin of the, uh, you, you can see actually the, the left renal vein starting to take off. So we're gonna dissect out the medial border of the vena cava and then find the right renal artery behind here. So pretty standard. Probably, you're probably accustomed to this approach with your, your retroperitoneal lymph node dissections. So here, skipping ahead, putting the endovascular stapler now on the right renal artery, taking this inner aorocavally. And I think we put a clip on there too, uh, on, a, on a canal. So now, going forward, now when I do these, I, I would not put Rumel tourniquets on there. I think, again, this was an early case where, where uh, there's the, uh, the belt and suspenders approach to making sure things don't go wrong. Uh, you can appreciate how desmoplastic this renal mass is. We're cutting into the cava, but instead of being paper, tissue paper thin, which normal, normal anatomy would dictate, you can see kind of the rind that's on the cava. And one of the other interesting things about this case is, you know, those of you who've done open surgery know that you can try to milk some of these thrombi down. Um, in this particular case, uh, you can see that this, this tumor thrombus is very adherent to the, uh, the lining of the vena cava. So here we're actually having to just, you know, try to dissect off as much of this as possible, um, getting a laparoscopic endobag in there to really get some of this, 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 uh, the tumor off of the, the endothelium. So just resecting some of the wall where I felt it wasn't as clean. Um, and um, getting good exposure from the assistant suction there to, to try to better see this more clearly. So after, again, resecting now the posterior wall of the takeoff of the renal vein there, and so that's probably the, the, the renal artery stump that you can see there. And so once this is all freed, we, we then start our repair. This is just a 5-0 proline that we're gonna run And, um, and of course, I think some open surgery principles are gonna apply here. You know, when you come off and you restore blood flow, there's a, probably a, a takeoff of a lumbar that I missed. And so here you have to really, in open surgery, you'd have your assistant put two sponge sticks down, get compression of the cava so that you can see the venotomy and close it. So the same thing applies during uh, robotic minimally-invasive uh, surgery. So now skipping to the prostate, um, portion of the talk, we're about halfway through, so I'm gonna go through this relatively quickly. So these are just some of the principles that I found to be useful um, with, uh, with, this, uh, with radical prostatectomies. I am a believer in anatomic bladder neck preservation. 
Um, I, I do think that it results in earlier continents. It also just, I think, lessens the likelihood for urine leaks as well, because you're not having a, a big suture line, particularly on the bladder, that you have to worry about. The critical things to think about when you do the bladder neck uh, dissection, first the fourth arm is tinting the bladder up. Oftentimes, just like the fold of a tent, uh, you, the, the fold will stop kind of mid-prostate, and that serves as a landmark for me in terms of where to start the dissection. A lot of times it's starting, you know, so pe pe residents may ask me, well, where do you start? And I'll always, you know, kind of say, not glibly, but it's not where you start, it's where you end. And what I mean by that is once you dissect onto the prostate, you see the contour, you're going to dissect uh, cephalad and then peel this off. The critical thing about this in the sagittal plane and look at the prostate next time you've removed it, uh, in many cases from the endobag, the distance anteriorly from base to apex is always shorter than the distance posteriorly from apex to base. And so that means that your plane of dissection is not straight down. It's going to be uh, at an angle uh, moving towards the cephalad as you go posteriorly. So intraoperative photos demonstrating the uh, benefits of preserving the bladder neck. Number one, I, I strive for this turtleneck appearance. Uh, number two, this is during this, this, you can see that the prostate has been removed. We haven't done anastomosis yet, but during this period of time between dissecting the bladder neck out, doing the nerve sparing pedicles and apical dissection, the bladder has been filling up with urine, pushing down on the urine. You can see it's, the, you know, the urine is flowing out almost like urination inside the abdomen because of the uh, integrity of the preserved bladder neck. Um, the other critical things that I'll just quickly mention, think of this as an omega, again, not dissecting straight down. You're, as you're going towards the lateral aspects of the prostate, you're, you're, you're actually going more cephalad in terms of your dissection. Um, once you've reached the, the bladder neck as it coalesces into forming the prostatic urethra, you're going to see these linear fibers as a landmark. I'll do some blunt dissection again to get that turtleneck appearance. Then we incise the anterior bladder neck and then the posterior bladder neck. I used to have my assistant grab this, but frankly, I've just gone away from doing that because it's just inefficient. Uh, you don't need your assistant to do that, but early on that traction counter traction is helpful. Um, here it's critical not to buttonhole the bladder. Again, even though you're thinking about dissecting cephalad, sometimes flip, flipping it back and forth, looking inside at the mucosa can help you uh, avoid that buttonholing of the uh, bladder neck posteriorly. Uh, again, this just illustrates early on having the assistant give you tension and then dissecting cephalad is helpful so that you can uh, find the correct plane. I don't do this anymore, again, from an efficiency standpoint and over time just having less dependence on the assistant. One of the key things is what is the lateral extent of the dissection. Well, you know, I remember James Mon Jim Monty came as a visiting professor when, when I was a fifth year resident at UCLA as our visiting professor. And he'd tell us that a landmark during a radical cystectomy was the fat pad of Whitmore. And he said that you know, Dr. Whitmore at MSK would stop his antegrade dissection of the bladder pedicle at this point uh, when he encountered this fat pad. And then he'd do the retrograde for a nerve sparing radical cystectomy. So the point here being that when you finish dissecting the bladder neck off, you'll get through the, 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 mus the, the muscular portions of the bladder, and you'll encounter this fat pad. And that's where you would stop, because if you continue to do dissect, you're gonna get into the pedicle. Uh, so, you know, oftentimes the question comes up, well, if you have median lobe, can you still preserve the bladder neck? Well, it's more difficult to do that. Certainly these median lobes, BPH uh, thins out the bladder. Critical things to do, again, dissect laterally first, to free things up so you don't have as much tension, get to that fat pad so that it, it doesn't tear as easily. Uh, and then second pitfall that er, many people encounter early in their learning curve, they follow the contour of the BPH lobe 
and they end up not finding the simple vesicle and doing a simple prostatectomy. So, so at some point, when you do your dissection, instead of following the contour of the median lobe, you have to make that conscious decision to do a more cephalad dissection so that you're gonna uh, avoid being in the wrong plane. Uh, for interest of time, I'm gonna skip ahead in this video. Uh, again, it's not where you start, it's where you end up. I'm starting mid-prostate, but I'm di dissecting more cephalad. Um, I'm just gonna show the, how to deal with the adenoma. So here we, we have the adenoma uh, on the right side as well as the left side. Again, you're gonna see that the bladder neck is very thinned out uh, in contrast to someone who doesn't have uh, uh, protuberant median lobes or uh, bilateral hypertrophy. So um, again, I'm kind of milking this back, incising the, the, the mucosa there on the posterior aspect. I'm gonna peel it off as much as I can, but I don't wanna leave behind benign prostate either. Um, but, um, but you kind of get the idea of, of still trying to, and here you can start seeing that I can see the soft tissue bridge in a, a good plane between the, the BPH adenoma as well as the bladder. That fourth arm retraction is critical. And as I mentioned earlier, as you dissect down, you, at some point you have to make the conscious decision of not continuing to follow the contour of the adenoma. So this is just descriptions of papers showing, at least retrospectively, that bladder neck preservation um, was associated with earlier and better return of continence. There wasn't a difference in biochemical recurrence. And um, just a, a randomized trial from Germany during open surgery that showed that uh, uh, earlier uh, return of continence associated with bladder neck preservation, as well as uh, weighing those pads and finding that there was less uh, urine that soaked those pads with those who had bladder neck preservation versus not. One other point to mention, you know, it, 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 some, some series mentioned that uh, higher body mass index is associated with uh, poor urinary function afterwards. And I think a lot of that was perhaps during the open surgery era when the exposure for more obese men would be difficult through that lower midline incision. And I think there's a tendency when, when you struggle to try to improve exposure by pulling on things more, or using the fourth arm to, to pull more. And I think during open surgery, you, you could use the Balfour retractor, uh, switch to that notch retractor and do the same thing. And I think that of course has a detrimental effect. It's the adage of using tension just enough to move but not stretch the tissue should be embraced at all times. And I think that's a critical thing to, to try not to do that. I haven't found that higher body mass index uh, men have worse urinary control. Now, one of the other things during open surgery was we would use a figure of eight suture before we divided the dorsal vascular complex. Uh, again, with the insufflation pressure of laparoscopy, I said at 15, uh, I find that you don't need to do that. And so uh, this, this just, sometimes you would cut out the suture, it'd be loose, you'd have to redo it. Uh, and, uh, and I think it somewhat distorts uh, visualization of your apex. With the insufflation pressures, you can actually just cut through the uh, dorsal venous complex. And by doing that, uh, you know, we were one of the first to describe that there are two small arterioles there, the dorsal uh, arteries there that, that you can control with bipolar. This is just a view of someone with a very protuberant, you know, those are as big as the gonadal veins that I clipped in that previous patient with the uh, thrombus, but you can really just, just cut through. And by maintaining insufflation without even having to increase it, you still have relatively good visualization. And once you cut through, then using very small sutures, I do a master suture because when you tie this down, this is a circle. It's not like a figure of eight where it's an eight and it's kind of pulling two different planes together. I think it's just a more atraumatic. So as a uh, demonstration of that, I know some people I used to staple this. I don't use an endovascular stapler anymore. Why? 
it's cost inefficient, you know, a fire the vascular stapler, I, I don't know how much it costs, but it's several hundred dollars. The other thing is if you ever overfire tip of that stapler because you're, you're doing that with feel, then you're having to pluck those staples out from your urethra or else if one of those staples are left in there, that, that can cause a, uh, a, a stone to form at your anastomosis in the future. So, you know, I, I'd say back in 2007, I stopped using endovascular stapler. Um, so again, you can see a relatively large sinus here on the right. Um, we're just dissecting, using the contour of the prostate again to figure out where to uh, dissect. And now with MRIs, as, as much as we do it, you'll see here I'm doing a lot of blunt dissection. This is probably a video from, I guess, eight years ago. I would not do that now, and it pains me to see that. I would just do more as just with sharp dissection. Um, why? Again, I think that the, the less you can transmit some of that pulling and stretching, the better. That, that's a little arterial that I just divided there. Um, so again, with relatively large sinuses that you can see, um, you still have relatively good visualization. So um, skipping ahead. So this just then shows, you can see these sinuses clearly. We're going to do mattress sutures uh, and tie those down. And this is just going back the other way. So skipping to the, the uh, other aspects that affect urinary control, this is Marty Sanda's PROS-QA cohort published in New Journal of Medicine. You can see in terms of the urinary incontinence score on the EPIC questionnaire, with 100 being the best outcomes possible, that those who had nerve sparing at these multiple centers had better uh, urinary control long term. Uh, you know, one of the things that Dr. Walsh, uh, who has been a friend and mentor of mine, was a big fan of is intussusception. So uh, we, we did a, a parallel, this was not a randomized controlled trial, but at least to try to apply this during robotic surgery to see if there's any benefit. This of course uh, is, uh, the framework is based on his study back in 2002, where he did this during retropubic radical prostatectomy. Uh, before doing the, the uh, anastomosis, he would put a, a suture here posteriorly and then anteriorly, and uh, it, it would just kind of squeeze squeeze things together, and then he would do the anastomosis. So this order has to be a little different due to the camera being at the umbilicus during robotic surgery. Um, and so uh, in, in his series, he, he reported the three-month continence rates grew from 54% to 82%. There was others that uh, did studies and found that the, there was not that improvement, uh, and it had, had not been assessed in the minimally invasive setting. So this was 24 versus 24. Um, you know, there's a, went through a, a 10, a case learning curve where uh, we uploaded this video and actually got feedback by Dr. Walsh. Uh, so one, one, of the, one of the things that I wasn't doing, this is his feedback, one of the things that I wasn't doing was understanding that, and it took him kind of giving that feedback to understand that these interception sutures are not in the muscle of the bladder, rather you're, you're aiming for the, uh, the, the fat that, that is close, the fat pad that is close by. And so again, I mentioned the sequence is a little different. For, for robotic surgery, you're gonna do these posterior sutures then do the anastomosis and then do the anterior, uh, anterior intussusception suture. Um, I'm not going to show this in the interest of time, but uh, from the cystogram, you can see that, that the intussusception suture does make a difference. You know, there's a little waste here where the suture is. So in, 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 instead of just a, a round spherical balloon, as you're accustomed to seeing, there's actually a little bit of a, a, a figure of eight there. Um, in terms of the outcomes, and this is based on Epic CP, where we just looked at the item for no pad use versus pad use, at least in, in 
In our series, the difference again was that two weeks, there was a marketed improvement in those who had no leakage versus those who had leakage. That is 60% reported no leakage versus 20, roughly 21% of reported no leakage with non-interception. However, we found that by two months and uh, uh, that difference resolved. And so I think the difference resolves as healing occurs and, and as that, uh, that absorbable suture goes away. In terms of erectile uh, function preservation, I think one of the underappreciated aspects that I hinted at earlier is the blunt, uh, blunt dissection trauma that is caused by stretch injury and so forth. So this just highlights you know, the steps that I think is important. First, uh, we use this, um, we use the bipolar very close to the uh, seminal vesicles. I call this the cut and peel technique. And then we, we dissect that artery and almost peel it away. And many of you who do this will notice that when you're doing the, the seminal vesicle dissection, somewhat it's like doing a hydrocele and some of that blunt dissection to peel off uh, the, uh, the hydrocele, or in this case, the seminal vesicle surrounding soft tissue. Um, and uh, there's traction by the assistant on the stump of the vas deferens. Again, I've gotten away from doing that. I just, you know, you depend less on the assistant uh, as you as you do more of these. After the seminal vesicles are dissected out, it's critical to find that posterior curve of the prostate. In aggressive nerve sparing, you can uh, split the layers of the non-vase fascia. Instead of being on the pre-rectal fat, you wanna see the nice white layer of the non-VAs. This is from Walls and just shows uh, what I think is nice with the minimally invasive approach. You can split the, uh, the lateral pelvic fascia. With open surgery, you would open more widely and be onto the levator muscles and you use blunt dissection to push those levators off and you'll see that you can split this. Again, it's kind of similar to my remark about the pancreas not over dissecting. If you go more lateral, you're going to end up having to incise this prostatic fascia again rather than starting, starting more close to the prostate and doing it and then not incis instead of incising two layers to the new nerve sparing, you're only going to incise one. Um, and so this is just a, another representation of splitting that uh, that lateral pelvic fascia. Um, kind of a demonstration, just a video still. Uh, this is when you, again, if you, if you go more laterally, you're gonna notice the levators. Here we still have the, the uh, levator fascia intact when we split those two components, the prostatic fascia and the levator fascia. Um, and, uh, and, and in some men, you can actually see without even opening up the endopelvic fascia, you can see the fusion of the prostatic fascia and the uh, levator fascia, and that'll serve as the leading edge for the dissection. As you're doing this, here's that bleeding edge, you'll notice, especially in younger men, you'll see some prominent nerves. Those aren't necessarily the cavernous nerves. I'm not sure what the function is, but again, uh, I'm sure sparing those uh, can have some benefit. Uh, early on, I think one of the learning curves people go through is, where does this, where do I put the clip on? Where's that lateral pedicle dissection gonna occur? And then the confluence of the anterior contour and the posterior contour, it serves as a landmark for how high or low, if you will, that you need to take that pedicle. So another way to view that is, um, again, I've dissected out the anterior contour, posterior contour, then you just use the use your, your, your visualization, extrapolating what that contour is gonna be to serve as where your clips are gonna be placed. In this case, I've incised the prostatic fascia. I actually can see the, the border of my neurovascular bundle here, and that can also serve as a landmark for where to put those clips. Um, so just briefly, uh, this just shows the, kind of the defining that posterior contour posteriorly. I'm incising sharply here. I'm gonna get down and find the non-base fascia. And uh, it's, it's kind of a combination here, of blunt and sharp dissection. And as you go more laterally, you'll find, you can sometimes you'll see the, the contour of the, um, 
the, uh, the vein for the neurovascular bundles. So this is just, as I mentioned earlier, I'm not gonna pop into that endopelvic, I'm gonna kind of rub it off here, and you'll be able to see that there is a anatomic plane. Here again, I mentioned you can see the fusion of the two leaves of the fascia, you see that right there, and you can continue to see that, that there is a, I'm gonna highlight this, a, a leading edge to get that fascia off. So by leaving that, that fascia, levator fascia intact, um, and, and this is what I mentioned earlier, you'll be able to see some of these nerves that you, you would probably not see had you, had you opened up this more laterally and then had to dissect through and, and get this again. So the anterior contour of the prostate is being established. I'm just showing that nerve again, and then I can use that as a landmark to, to do my, uh, my clips here. Uh, again, moving forward in the interest of time, um, in, uh, intrafascial nerve sparing, you can see that the, uh, the fascia is nicely preserved. In contrast, if there's higher tumor burden, you can do interfascial nerve sparing and use the capsular veins here as a landmark. Capsular veins uh, are usually the most medial component of the neurovascular bundle, so you can actually just split these using the same principle that I mentioned earlier about the, the uh, selective ligation of the dorsal venous complex. Your insufflation pressures are gonna be uh, very adequate for this. Um, again, I mentioned traction is a silent killer. Uh, when you're doing these cases, if you see the assistant put that sucker on the neurovascular bundle to help with the dissection, that's, that's causing stretch injury uh, and, and delaying the, and ultimately harming the recovery of, of erectile function. Just an example from BJU, uh, you can see that that neurovascular bundle is being stretched 90 degrees, again, uh, sacrificing uh, stretch in terms of trying to get the, 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 the best uh, anatomic plane to do the nerve sparing. Uh, just showing that by decreasing countertraction with the assistant, uh, the days to potency or erectile function return decrease. The other thing that commonly is done is this kind of blunt dissection to peel the neurovascular bundle away from the prostate rather than dissecting the prostate away from the neurovascular bundle. This temporary S-shaped deformity really, again, causes stretch injury. And so I strive to do sharp dissection. And then if I'm going to do blunt dissection, open and close the scissors to do longitudinal uh, uh, blunt dissection rather than uh, lateral dissection. So here again, just illustrating the difference on the left, you can see a lot of blunt dissection, a lot of transient or uh, temporary traction on that neurovascular bundle. On the right, I'm using more blunt dissection. There is a little bit, of, I'm sorry, using more sharp dissection. There is some uh, blunt dissection, but it's, in general, it's, it's uh, less, less of displacement, if you will, of the uh, instrument as well as, 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 as pulling that neurovascular bundle away from the prostate. Uh, same thing on the left side here or actually we're just getting the APAC. So this is a gentleman that I had not, again, I, I just divided the DVC. Um, I haven't even sewn this. And so, sometimes if it allows, I don't sew it because I just want one instrument change. I'm only gonna switch to my needle drivers as I sew the DVC and then do the anastomosis. Uh, so it's just a more efficient way to do that. Um, just showing here on the left side, again, this intermittent blunt dissection really pushes stretch injury on the prostate. Now we're at the apex. Just showing you can use your, your, uh, your Maryland there to spread and then just cut sharply uh, to uh, minimize stretch injury to that left neurovascular bundle. Um, again, showing that using the validated quality of life instruments that there's earlier and better return of uh, sexual function. There is a learning curve to doing this, um, but, uh, but over time that, that the sexual function improved because of less uh, stretch injury. I'm not gonna belabor the uh, the way that the anastomosis is done, I'll just point out some key things. One is 
I used to uh, put my posterior suture in, it's an interrupted, before I divided the posterior uh, urethral stump just because it would have less retraction. Number two, uh, just showing you how that's done. Number two, I still like to put this posterior interrupted suture in before I do my running double-armed anteriorly just because it kind of brings things together. I don't do a Rocco suture. Uh, again, belt and suspenders to do that. Critically, when you're doing this, um, you know, you don't want to pull the suture back towards you because it's going to make a U-turn and saw through the urethral stump. So 90-degree angle, pull it through. Um, I'll briefly just show this. Again, we're uh, going to go for another five minutes to leave time for questions. Uh, but, uh, but again, now I even use the suture cut to do this myself rather than have my assistant do this. This is pre-placing those five and seven o'clock with a, with a, a double-armed uh, suture in this case and doing the anastomosis. And then we're just gonna run this. The other thing I'll mention to you and, and maybe your mentors where you already do this. When you're doing the posterior anastomosis, you wanna use the ipsilateral hand, meaning that I'm doing the, uh, sewing the right side, I'm using my right, my right needle driver, okay? Uh, it's just the economy of motion. But then once I get to the anterior, once I get to say the, you know, the, the four o'clock, I should say the eight o'clock to the four o'clock, I'm using the contralateral hand because then I can throw this in one bite. So again, it's just economy of motion. You can see me cinch up, not over tightening, uh, but, uh, but again, all of this is in one, one and a half throws. Each time the assistant is moving the catheter, make sure I don't sew that in. Um, so again, some tips about the anastomosis. Also, we looked at the men that had a urine leak and we did not find that they were at an increased risk of stricture and incontinence, which was suggested by some of the earlier open radical prostatectomy literature. So more recently, um, Keith Kowalczyk was kind to include me in a surgery in motion that's in press now. I think the proofs will probably be posted at European Urology within a couple of weeks. Um, but just uh, looking at Retzius sparing approach and, uh, and uh, certainly in his series, the, uh, the hazard ratio for 12 month improvement in urinary function was actually 0.21 if I recall, meaning that there was an 80% reduction in the likelihood of incontinence defined in zero one pad at 12 months. And so really one of the first uh, Retzia sparing series that demonstrates that there is a durable benefit in urinary control as compared to many of the series that just show, show earlier return of continence. Um, there's pre-placement of sutures here. I, I typically haven't done this uh, with a Keith needle and opening up that cul-de-sac. And uh, then, you know, in contrast to what I showed you earlier with a conventional prostatectomy, you're really just using the posterior plane. There is no anterior contour def definition uh, when you're doing your nerve sparing. You're follow that, following that posterior plane all the way around and um, then towards the apex. And then as you have found that contour, then you get to the anterior portion, try to define more so uh, the uh, apex a little bit more, but then starting to thin out the bladder neck and attempt to do bladder neck preservation. The bladder neck dissection, of course, is different. It's from uh, the posterior aspect instead of anterior and, uh, and the thought process. And then once you've done that, then you're getting through the apical dissection. This is largely the same, although you're not gonna divide the DVC, you're actually below that layer and you're preserving a lot of the or apron. So uh, then the division the of the urethral stump and then the anastomosis is done in a different way, uh, meaning that instead of uh, uh, starting uh, the anastomosis as, as we did posteriorly, uh, you're, you're, you're starting this in a different way and the, the motion is different. And so, so I'm gonna just show a little bit, uh, and this is already 
you can see here I'm using the fourth arm to hold up the, um, the, the cul-de-sac there. And, um, and really all that's left here is just the apical dissection. But we've, we've stayed out of the DVC, or if, if, if we have, there, there's very little, very small infringement on the DVC, um, and uh, just dissecting out that apex. So let me get to the summary slides so that we leave some time for questions. So for the for radical prostatectomy, I think it's critical to it's a, it's a matter of minimizing trauma. And so one of the things that I like to say is it's neurosurgery for the prostate. So it's to the extent that you can alleviate and reduce uh, tension traction, whether it's it's um, you know sucker traction or uh, transient uh, temporary traction by blunt dissection. You want to try to get rid of that as much as possible then minimizing damage to both the external, external and internal urinary sphincter, the, uh, avoiding these large bites of the uh, dorsal vascular complex that can grab some of the, the, uh, the rhabdosphincter and bladder neck preservation, again, in my opinion, facilitates urinary continence as well as uh, just makes the anastomosis go quicker. Uh, nerve sparing is not only about getting into the right plane, but again, to minimize stretch injury. Uh, for median lobes, release the prostate and the bladder laterally, to avoid the tearing that happens because of the thinned out uh, bladder and uh, mucosa. And then retina sparing, 12-month uh, data suggests that there is a durable benefit in terms of continence due to preser preservation of the overlying fascia support. So let me stop there and, uh, and, and get to the questions. So one of the questions that came up in response to you saying you don't do the Brocco stitch is what is the evidence out there for doing a Brocco stitch? Well, so, so I think that there are randomized trials um, that demonstrated the benefits of the Rocco suture in terms of, uh, I, I think Menon had a study that said that the Rocco suture, on the other hand, Menon had a randomized trial that, that mentioned that there was no benefit, although uh, there was a decreased likelihood of extravasation on a cystogram. So in my opinion, the, the main benefit of that posterior suture, just like you saw, I don't, I don't grab an ex excessive amount of tissue back there and one of the reasons is if you look at anatomic studies, there are studies that demonstrate that even at the six o'clock position of the urethral stop, that there may be some nerves there in terms of nerves for erectile functions. And so if you grab an excessive amount of that tissue posteriorly, you could be doing that, number one. Number two is, again, imagine now Retzia sparing, which, you know, recent surveys, there was a European urology-focused publication that said, uh, 30 centers around the world two years ago did retzia sparing. There was a Twitter poll that Keith did that showed that 10% of urologists and the response rate was about 220 some odd urologists, 10% do retzia sparing. Well, with a retzia sparing approach, your bladder, instead of being more cephalad, is actually anterior in your view. And so you're not going to do a Rocco suture uh, with retzia sparing. And yet it, it appears that the early continence uh, with, with that approach is better than even with retzia sparing. And so, so I would just say that, that I, I think the proven benefit of retzia sparing is that it releases tension on the anastomosis. And in some cases where, in those once in a while cases, like one out of 200 cases where it's really large prostate or for, for some reason it's really difficult to get the bladder down, I think in those cases I, I will be more aggressive about a Rocco suture, but inevitably I don't really go behind the bladder and fix something behind the bladder down to you know, that, that uh, posterior rhabdosphincter tissue just because, you know, bringing the bladder neck down in and of itself is enough. Other questions, Rand? So that's actually the only question that we got. 
Okay, great. Well, um, you know, I, I, please feel free to email me if there's any uh, questions. I, I'm grateful again to the organizers. I think this Zoom uh, meeting is a great way to facilitate interactions. It's always a pleasure to return to the, uh, the Western section virtually, where uh, certainly I enjoyed uh, as a resident those meetings out in Hawaii every other year. Uh, so uh, have a great day and uh, thanks for your attention. And thank you, Dr. Hu, for the great lecture and everyone that tuned in. If you could go ahead and fill out a lecture evaluation as well, that would be greatly appreciated. Thanks for being a moderator and reminding me to go to that last slide. Don't worry. All right, take care. Thank you for listening. We'll talk to you soon. Learn more by visiting our website, urologycovid.ucsf.edu.